1: toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true.
2: This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. No matter where you are going on your next travels, Get Your Guide offers great ways to connect with your destination and make memories with locally vetted, expertly curated experiences. Things just as examples. You could go whitewater rafting in the Grand Canyon. You could take a tour of Pike Place Market in Seattle with a chef. There's a London Royal Parks and Palaces tour. All kinds of options wherever you are going. So discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at GetYourGuide.com. Um, Alienware.com slash deals. That's alienware.com slash deals.
1: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. <laughs> Uh, for all of recorded history, Tracy, and certainly before history was being recorded, humans have been experiencing pain of one form or another. Yep. Uh, that might seem like we're leading into a very dark place, but really we're talking about uh, ways that we've managed and alleviated pain. And today, of course, we're also talking about fairly minor ones in this case. Um, it's just as simple as like running to your local drugstore or supermarket or even big box store to pick up non-prescription pain relief. Easy peasy. And we're going to talk today about specifically one of the possible pain relievers that you might reach for in such a circumstance, which is aspirin. Uh, From its natural base substance, salicin, to the invention of its synthetic derivative form that we still use, the story of aspirin is longer than people might expect, and it also has its own controversy and conflict. Uh, For example, there is one man whose name always comes up and is credited with inventing aspirin, and we're going to get to him and whether he should get credit, because there have been some challenges to that. But first, we need to talk about the ancient history of the medicinal base of this, as well as some of the other people who figure into the development of our knowledge about the workings of salicylic acid and its medicinal possibilities.
2: Yeah, and just to be super clear, we're not suggesting that like every pain that a person could have can be solved with a quickie little trip to the store to pick up something. No, No. but
1: I got a headache. I'm going to run across the street and get some. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) The general day-to-day minor pains, minor pains. Yes, the
2: minor aches and pains, not the more serious stuff. So. Salicin is found in the bark of the white willow tree and in wintergreen leaves, as well as a number of other plant life in various concentrations. And it can be converted pretty easily in a lab or in the human body into salicylic acid. And then this can get a little bit confusing because sometimes the two seem to be used almost interchangeably.
1: Yeah, even in in my research, there were moments where people were talking about the history of this and they were... Pretty casually tossing them back and forth, but that's n- not exactly <laughs> correct. Uh, and we'll talk about how, even in the medical community, that's been a problem at various points in time. Uh, salicylic acid is what's called a beta hydroxy acid. And you have probably heard of it before because it is used to tout various skin cares all the time. And that's because beta hydroxy acids are excellent exfoliants. And unlike alpha hydroxy acids, which are also very good exfoliants, Beta-hydroxy acids are also really good at reducing wrinkles and improving overall skin texture, and they don't have the same tendency to cause irritation that their alpha-hydroxy counterparts do. It is also antifungal, anti-infective, and it can be used to remove and heal epidermal problems like calluses and warts.
2: In addition to all of that, salicylic acid can also help with pain, and that's something that humans have known about for a very long time, although they didn't have that name for it and didn't understand how this pain relief was relating to salicin. The first record that we have of willow bark being used as a pain remedy comes from Samaria 4,000 years ago. And in addition to relieving pain, it was also used to treat inflammation and fever.
1: And this knowledge of the extract of willow bark as a medicinal compound did not stay in Mesopotamia. It traveled the globe. In China, going back at least 2,000 years, willow was being used to treat everything from the common cold to hemorrhages.
2: Hippocrates documented the idea of a tea made from willow bark to tame pain during childbirth right around the transition from the 5th to the 4th century BCE, Several hundred years later, another Greek physician, Dioscorides, routinely took advantage of the anti-inflammatory properties of willow bark when treating his patients. Pliny the Elder and Galen also wrote about their uses of the extract of willow
1: bark. And then in the 1760s, Reverend Edmund Stone, who was a member of the Royal Society in addition to being an Oxfordshire vicar, conducted his own study of the potential medicinal properties of willow bark based entirely on a hunch. As an aside, you will also see him mentioned as Reverend Edward Stone both show up. Don't be confused. (laughs) In his own writing, though, he uses Edmund. Uh, But he wrote out his findings in a letter to the Royal Society titled, An Account of the Success of the Bark of the Willow in the Cure of Agues, which he wrote to the Right Honorable George Earl of Macclesfield, who was the Society's president at the time.
2: So in this account, Stone made it clear that he believed he had identified something really important, and he wrote in the opening, quote, Among the many useful discoveries which this age hath made, there are very few which better deserve the attention of the public than what I am going to lay before your lordship.
1: And Stone goes on to describe in this letter how he accidentally tasted the willow bark of a tree and he was kind of blown over by how bitter it was. And he noticed that willows grew in the same places that egg were common ailments. So egg are intense episodes of fever or shivering. They've often been associated with malaria. And Stone believed that, quote, many natural maladies carry their cures along with them or that their remedies lie not far from their cures. So he knew of other bitter plants that had healing properties, including the Peruvian chinchona tree, which also contains salicin in its bark. So he thought the bitter willow growing so near to where agues were common might similarly offer a solution to the fevers that he saw in his community.
2: So... Stone said that he looked for information on the willow being used before. He did not have access to the various accounts and records that we mentioned, uh, because all he could find was the name of the tree and botany books that he consulted. Uh, he found nothing about its pharmaceutical possibilities. This is a way where uh, we are very spoiled by the internet and search engines. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yes. I often think when we're talking about um, historical scientists, mathematicians, philosophers, etc., like, what would they do with the command of information that we have at our fingertips in our pockets? But so Stone, not finding anything himself on willow ever being used in this way, set out to do some experimenting. And the Reverend Stone gathered a pound of willow bark over the course of a summer, and then he put it in a bag, and he hung this bag outside of a baker's oven for three months. And while it sat there, it was exposed not to direct heat, but from the indirect heat of the stove for this prolonged period of time. And over that time, the contents of the bag dried out and just crumbled to powder. Once he had this
2: powder, Stone started giving it to people in very tiny amounts, at first just 20 grains of the powder as a dose. So if there was anything toxic in this substance, the negative impact to his patients would hopefully be pretty minimal. As the people he was treating for ague appeared to tolerate this little dried powder, he started giving them additional doses, still pretty small, every four hours, and then he carefully observed the results.
1: And his patients had some improvement, but none of them were cured of their problems. But as they still seemed to have no negative reactions to this experimental treatment, Stone increased the dose, noting, quote, I grew bolder with it, and in a few days increased the dose to two scruples, and the ague was soon removed. So a scruple is that initial dose. It's 20 grains. So Stone was basically doubling the dosage.
2: Stone continued on with his study for five years, noting that over and over, in 50 cases, his patients' agues were either cured, or in a few very severe cases, they were made much better. Stone's letter goes on to talk about the trees themselves and how abundant they are and how easy to access. And he concluded with, quote, I have no other motives for publishing this valuable specific than that it may have a fair and full trial in all its variety of circumstances and situations and that the world may reap the benefits accruing from it.
1: So coming up, we're going to talk about some of the advances in chemistry that enabled scientists to more fully understand why willow bark helped with pain and fever. But first, we are going to pause and have a little sponsor break.
0: Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices.
1: Privileges and start earning points toward your next day. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. So while Reverend Stone's work and his success with patients came from using willow bark... He didn't really understand the chemistry involved. He knew that it was the bark or something in it, but that was it. And it wasn't until the 1800s that significant strides were made in isolating and identifying the naturally occurring agent that had these beneficial properties.
2: In the 1820s and 30s, there were a number of advancements in the scientific community's understanding of what it was about willow tree bark and other plants that offered pain relief and anti-inflammatory properties to patients, and every step was building on the work of one that came
1: before it. In 1828, a professor of pharmacology in Munich named Johann Buchner made a big breakthrough. He was able to extract and purify the compound that was doing all of that good, and he named it salicin, that is based on the Latin word for willow, salix. In the following year, French pharmacist Henri Leroux built on Buchner's work. He was able to isolate a pure crystalline form of salicin in 1829.
2: In 1838, Raphael Piria, who was a chemist from Italy, was able to produce salicylic acid in a lab. He did this by resolving the chemical structure of salicin into a sugar and salicyl alcohol, and then oxidized the salicyl alcohol to produce salicylic acid.
1: The precise chemical structure of salicyl alcohol was identified by two German chemists at Marburg University, Hermann Kolbe and E. Lautemann, at the end of the 1850s. And over the next 15 years, that team's work continued until they were able to develop a process for industrial production of salicylic acid. The Haydn Chemical Company in Germany started producing synthetic salicylic acid for pain and fever in 1874, making them the first commercial producer.
2: In the 1870s, Thomas MacLagan, the medical superintendent at Dundee Royal Infirmary in Scotland, had a lot of patients with rheumatism, and he noticed that there were similarities between the symptoms of those patients and patients with fevers that weren't related to rheumatism. The patients with general fevers had often been successfully treated with chinchona bark, which, as we mentioned in the section on Reverend Edmund Stone, contains salicin.
1: And so McLagan decided to test the bark extract salicin out for himself, just as Stone had, although obviously there was a little more knowledge about it at this point. And in this case, the doctor first tested the substance on himself, and he approached this as a progressive test. So first he took five grains and had no negative reaction, and then he took 10 grains, which was similarly benign, and then he took 30 with no, quote, inconvenience or discomfort. And at that point, he was convinced that salicin was safe, so he next used it to address a rheumatic patient with a fever, high heart rate, and swollen and achy joints.
2: This patient was given 12 grains of salicin at a time, repeating the dose every three hours. After seven doses, over the course of a 24-hour period, the patient's condition had improved. The fever and heart rate were both reduced significantly, although they were still slightly above normal. Two more days of treatment reduced swelling and alleviated the patient's pain.
1: After two more years of trials with his patients, McLagan published his results in The Lancet. And this article features eight case studies of patients with varying degrees of rheumatism. And he wrote, quote, "...the sudden arrest of the painful symptoms and the coincident rapid fall of pulse and temperature followed so immediately on the administration of the salicin that it is impossible not to attribute them to its use." Cases of acute rheumatism do sometimes improve in the most unexpected manner, but I never saw a case get well so quickly as those of which I have given details above.
2: McLagan went on to say that salicin was the most effective treatment for rheumatism, and also that its use, dosage, and effects should be carefully documented. Interestingly, he believed that salicylic acid, which had been isolated and was favored by some medical practitioners, was not as effective or palatable a treatment as salicin. Even during this time, there was some confusion about whether the terms salicin and salicylic acid were two separate things among some members of the medical community.
1: Yeah, I did see a a note in one article about McLagan that uh, there was a doctor that wrote him an apology note because he got really mad that this guy kept confusing the two terms. But this is what brings us to a familiar name, Bear. The firm, Farbenfabrik & Vorm Friedrich Baer & Company, started as a dye company. But in the 1890s, the decision was made that the company would turn its efforts to pharmaceuticals. And this might seem like a weird gear shift to go from pigments to pharmaceuticals, but both involved chemistry, and this was a new and growing field. And additionally, the company had a really good name among consumers, and so it was able to leverage that brand trust into these new ventures. So we've been talking
2: about how practitioners like the Reverend Stone were very careful in dosage of salicin and how in Stone's cases in particular, he recorded no negative side effects. But that is really not an accurate picture of the use of oral salicylic acid treatment. Over time, it can cause significant issues with digestive health, including nausea, ulcers, vomiting, these are all things that can come from using salicylic acid as a medicine over time.
1: Yeah, salicin is more easily tolerated. We're going to get into why in a minute, but salicylic acid, once it's isolated, is a lot rougher on the gastrointestinal tract. And this is what leads us to the name that is most commonly associated with aspirin's origins, and that is Felix Hoffman. And Hoffman, who was born in 1868, initially pursued a career as a pharmacist when he finished his education. But soon he realized that he actually wanted to do some more in-depth science and become a chemist, and so he went back to school. In 1893, he finished his graduate work with honors, and he joined Bayer as a chemist in their newly established pharmaceuticals division. In
2: 1897, Hoffman added the acetyl group CH3CO to salicylic acid. The result was acetylsalicylic acid, which would eventually come to be known as aspirin.
1: And this sounds like a really insightful experiment, and you could say that it is, but really Hoffman was acetylating a lot of different molecules to potentially create patentable medicines. Bayer's early medicines, uh, phenocetin and tannig, were also developed using this same process in projects that were run by other chemists.
2: The origin for Hoffman's experiment has a number of different stories to it. One version is that his boss at Bayer, Arthur Eichengrün, had tasked him with figuring out a way to make salicylic acid more tolerable. And the other was that his father took salicylic acid for his rheumatism and was experiencing the negative side effects that come along with using it for a prolonged period. So Hoffman was driven by a desire to help him.
1: There's another man involved in this named Heinrich Dreser, and he ran the pharmaceutical lab at Bayer, and it was his responsibility to test Hoffman's new substance. And Dreser was slow to work with the acetylsalicylic acid. He openly said that he thought it had no value and, moreover, that it could be damaging to the heart.
2: There was another acetylated compound created by Hoffman around the same time, which Dreser thought would be a lot more lucrative, and that was heroin. Hoffman had created it when he acetylated morphine, but that was not patentable because it had been discovered by another scientist 25 years earlier. Bayer sold heroin as a pain reliever and a cough suppressant for years.
1: Many other companies did too. We don't want to put that all on bear. You have probably seen as a, uh, I'm presuming if you're a listener that you're a history fan, you've probably seen like the old timey adverts for heroin as like a magical cure-all. But after more than a year of this aspirin compound being developed, Drezer, after getting pressure from Arthur Eichengroon, who also uh, kind of got some other people at Bayer involved in the cause to kind of push for this thing to get tested, got back to Hoffman's acetylsalicylic acid. And Drezer first tested it on himself, and then he ran an animal study. And next, Bayer ran tests in hospitals. Eichengrun started this more widespread trial of the new compound, offering it to doctors to use with their patients. And the results were as hoped. This new medication successfully treated patients, particularly as a pain reliever. The full clinical trials were published in early 1899.
2: Bayer was quick to recognize the financial potential of aspirin, and we will talk about its entry into the market after we pause for another word from a sponsor.
1: The German patent application that Bayer filed was actually rejected. Two other chemists in Europe had created the acetylsalicylic acid before Hoffman, although those were in lab scenarios. And even though they they submitted patents, neither of those parties had been able to create a stable version that could go to market.
2: But Bayer went ahead and filed a patent application in the U.S., and that was accepted. It was written by Felix Hoffman, and it begins, quote, "Be it known that I, Felix Hoffman, Doctor of Philosophy, chemist, a signer to the Farben Fabrican of Elberfield Company of New York." residing at Elberfield, Germany, have invented a new and useful improvement in the manufacture or production of acetylsalicylic acid.
1: And Hoffman described his process in detail in that patent paper, writing quote, in producing my new compound I can proceed as follows, without limiting myself to the particulars given. A mixture prepared from 50 parts of salicylic acid and 75 parts acetic anhydride is heated for about two hours at about 150 degrees centigrade in a vessel provided with a reflux condenser. Thus, a clear liquid is obtained from which on cooling a crystalline mass is separated, which is the acetylsalicylic acid. It is freed from the acetic anhydride by pressing and then recrystallized from dry chloroform. The acid is thus obtained in the shape of glittering white needles, melting at about 135 degrees centigrade, which are easily soluble in benzene, alcohol, glacial acetic acid, and chloroform, but difficultly soluble in cold water.
2: On March 6, 1899, aspirin was registered as a trademark name by the Bayer Company. The name takes the A from acetyl, S-P-I-R, from the genus of plants that are alternative sources of salicin, which is spuria. The N suffix was a popular one at the time in drug names, heroin being another example.
1: Yeah, there are a number if you look at drugs being developed at the time that end in I-N. The first aspirin that appeared in tablet form rather than a powder was in 1900, although powder aspirin continued to be offered. And these various options made it incredibly easy for doctors to prescribe. And aspirin could actually still only be acquired with a prescription up until 1915, even in dosages that we today would easily be able to buy without one. In
2: 1919, Bayer lost its exclusivity right to use the name aspirin through its U.S. patent as part of the reparations for World War I, the company had to sell its US factories. Sterling Incorporated bought the rights to Olive Bayer's US drug properties for three million dollars. The name didn't stay trademarked under Sterling, though, and it's been considered a generic term in the U.S. for decades. In dozens of other countries, though, it's still a trademarked name.
1: Bayer was able to get the international trademark on the name back when it bought it from Smith, Kline, Beecham for $1 billion. That large price tag was not only for the trademark on the name aspirin. That acquisition was rolled into a larger deal that included other points and other drugs as well. SmithKline Beecham had bought out Sterling's worldwide rights, so in countries where the trademark is still held, aspirin was once again under the Bayer umbrella.
2: funny detail in all of this was that exactly how Hoffman's work with salicylic acid actually made the substance more tolerable to people ingesting it was still a little fuzzy. Essentially, he transformed it into a new molecule that, one, doesn't trigger issues in the GI tract, and two, is converted back to salicylic acid by the body so that the pain and fever relief characteristics of it still apply. But that whole process was not really understood until the 1970s. It was only after work in the second half of the 20th century that the potential benefits of aspirin related to heart disease and stroke came to be known.
1: Now, how things actually played out at Bayer related to the discovery of aspirin have continued to be debated. We mentioned when we first introduced that segment the two different stories about how the experiments that led to the development of aspirin actually began, but that is not the end of it.
2: In 1944, 47 years after Hoffman's development of aspirin in the Bayer lab, Arthur Eichengren, while being held at Theresienstadt concentration camp because he was Jewish, wrote his version of this story. In this letter, which is in the Bayer archives, he said that he was the one who wanted to come up with a version of salicylic acid that would diminish these negative gastrointestinal side effects. According to his account, he wrote down all the instructions and Hoffman carried them out without really understanding any of it. Eichengrun also published this account in 1949, three years after Hoffman's death. He published that in the
1: German Periodical Pharmazie. In the 1990s, Walter Sneeder, pharmaceutical historian and deputy head of the Department of Pharmaceutical Sciences at the University of Strathclyde, Glasgow, took up the cause of Eichengruen's credit. And one of the key pieces of Sneader's argument hinges on what he believed might have been a mistranslation of one of Hoffman's 1897 notes, which may have confused verb tense a little bit. While most translations indicate that Hoffman was saying the compound was about to be tested, Sneader put forth the idea that it actually should be translated to indicate that it already was being tested, i.e. the work that Hoffman was doing was corroborative of an existing process rather than developmental.
2: In 1999, the 100-year anniversary of the patent in Felix Hoffman's name, Bayer issued a press release addressing this ongoing debate about Hoffman and Arthur Eichengroen. The release states, quote, The claim that not Hoffman but his colleague Dr. Arthur Eichengroen is responsible for the development cannot be proven. The statement goes on to mention Walter Sneeder and his assertion that Hoffman was working off notes by Eichengroen and that Eichengroen should be given credit.
1: But Baer's stance was that Eichengrun was never Hoffman's superior, that they were equals, and so it would be weird for him to have assigned him a task, and that Sneeders' claims contradicted established documentation. Some of the confusion the company claims comes from the fact that Eichengroon did have a subordinate named Hoffman, but that was Fritz Hoffman, not Felix.
2: The Bayer account points out that Arthur Eichengroo never claimed credit for aspirin until he was in his 80s after instances over five decades when he attributed the work to Felix Hoffman. Of course, there's a case to be made that because he was Jewish, he might never have felt that he had the agency in Germany to be able to do that.
1: And one of the places, though, where Sneeder's case for Eichengrün kind of falls apart is also noted in that press release. So, in his paper on the subject, Sneeder mentions that Hoffman was never publicly credited with the invention of aspirin until 1934. The assertion there is that this was an attempt to write the Jewish Eichengrün out of the record during a period of intense anti-Semitism in Germany. But the problem there is that Hoffman was credited on the patent application all the way back in 1899, as well as in other paperwork that dated back to when he was doing the experiments in 1897.
2: Bayer's statement concludes by noting that both Eichengrood and Hoffman were researchers working for Bayer in 1897, basically saying they were in a work-for-hire situation. The statement finished with, quote, it would have made no difference to either the company or the success of the aspirin brand whether one or the other is considered the first to succeed in the acetylation of salicylic acid for the first time in a chemically pure and stable form.
1: Yeah, it's easy for a big company to go. It doesn't matter who got credit. Neither of them was really getting anything out of it. But, of course, the different people involved in this effort, it matters a great deal. We have talked many times and up several times lately about how scientific discovery and credit is an issue of great debate and great passion. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, But which of the Bayer scientists truly invented aspirin? Will likely never be conclusively settled. It's interesting reading modern, more modern accounts of the whole thing that they do kind of mention that this this debate goes on. Although some completely just go with the Felix Hoffman version. It's kind of fascinating. Uh, but that is the invention of aspirin. Do you have some listener mail also? I do. This uh, is from our listener Summer, and she is writing to us about our recent uh, episode. The Krampus and Friends Holiday Special 4, and specifically the Seven Lucky Gods. And she writes, My name is Summer, and I've been listening to your podcast for probably four years now. I started when I needed something to do while sewing costumes for the high school drama club I run. My family and I have lived in Japan for nine and a half years now. My husband teaches at a high school on an American military base. I had to write in after listening to the Seven Lucky Gods segment because I have a crazy story about them. My friend Amanda and I decided to do a Seven Lucky Gods tour last January in Yokohama. Many cities or areas have their own tours that can either be walked or driven in one day. I've been driving in Japan for many years now, so I felt confident and comfortable getting around. But there are always surprises here. There are many roads that are technically two-lane, but in reality, only one car can fit down them. Also, something Google Maps struggles with is knowing where the real entrance to a place is. These two things conspired against us on our quest to get all seven of our lucky gods. On our way to the fifth stop, we were following our Google Maps Instructions that led us into a residential neighborhood with those two-lane roads that only fit my minivan. We went up a hill, and Google instructed us to turn at the top, which made sense because directly in front of us was a set of stairs, though I started to suspect this was not going to work as the road that I turned onto was now gravel, bordered on the left by a wall and on the right by a steep 20-foot drop-off with no guardrail. We drove very slowly on this road for about 20 meters and turned again, only to discover that we were now definitely on something that was more akin to a sidewalk. It ended about 20 meters in front of us in stairs, which we obviously were not going to drive down. I now had the unenviable task of backing up around two corners on a knot road about seven feet wide in a minivan. Also, did I mention the cliff drop-off on one side and my three-year-old in the backseat? seat? Thank heavens for backup cameras and my friend Amanda who got out and helped guide me around the corners and the telephone poles. When we finally got back on a real road, we parked the car and laughed from the sheer terror of it all. We assumed the stairs in front of us were a back entrance to the shrine, and we wandered on it. Sure enough, it was, and we were able to get our very lucky god and continue on, though this time with a little less reliance on Google." I look forward to doing another tour in Kamakura in 2020, although I will probably do it on foot. Thank you for creating such a fun and informative podcast. I always recommend your episode on Sadako and the 1,000 cranes to any friends that visit Hiroshima. That story is very close to my heart after directing a show on it, and I wept like a child at the mention of the Hiroshima Peace Park. I we- I get weepy just thinking about it. See? Um, thank you for being my company while I sew hundreds of costumes and drive around on adventures in Japan. Um, Summer, this is such a fun, slightly terrifying story. I agree. The backup camera is magic. <laughs> um, I'm glad you're safe. That drop-off sounds very scary to me. And I, I, uh, I hope that your visit to all the lucky gods granted you luck for the rest of the year that you never found yourself in such a precarious position again. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at podcast at iheartradio.com. That is a newish email address, so take note, not the same as the old one. You can also find us everywhere on social media as in History, and you can visit our website, missedinhistory.com. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you can do that on the iHeartRadio app, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever. Wherever it is you listen.
2: Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
1: Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool.